All right. Take your Bibles this morning and open to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. A couple Sundays ago, we studied verses 8 through 10 here in chapter 6, which Paul discussed a little theology on the death of Christ. And when he finished that, the very last statement there in verse 10, he said, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Well, coming off of that statement, uh, we entered into verses 11 through 14 last week where Paul is, is basically telling the church as Christ rose from the grave and he lived for God, as that verse said, I want, or if you will, I expect you, the church, to do the same thing. Or if you remember the words of 1 John 2, 6, he says simply, walk, live as Jesus did. Well, he then said in verse 11, he says, I want you to count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. As Paul had talked about in the previous verses, they needed to know this. They needed to realize that they were no longer, as us today, they're no longer under sin's control. We do not have to live that way. It says here in chapter 6, verse 2, that we died to sin. The believer has died to sin. And then he says, how can we live in it any longer, Paul says. And so with that, he, he confronts them in the very next verse, in verse 12, and he says, therefore... In other words, therefore, because we've died to sin, because we are now uh, uh, alive in Christ, he says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Now, the reason I said there that uh, Paul confronted them is because in the Greek, instead of saying, uh, do not let sin reign, it is in the present tense. And so he's saying, stop letting sin reign. That's what that is, which is to say it was already going on. Okay? It's, it's a big difference when you're saying, hey, let's not do this, than to say, hey, you need to stop doing this. And that's what he's talking about here. What this church struggled with then, to be honest with you, is really no different than our church or you and me today. Even though the believer uh, the true believer does not live in constant sin. We don't live in habitual sin. It is always there. Sin is always there as an opposing force in our lives. And as you know, sometimes we fail. Okay. Now, from what Paul is going to say this morning as we get to verse 17, this church was not a mess this church was not a disaster, like, like for example, the Corinthian church. They were, they were a mess. And that being said, though, it wasn't perfect either. Okay? And Paul was going to hold them accountable. He was there to remind them, as we saw in the previous verses, to say, we're different now. We, as the body of Christ, are different now. Once again, we have died to sin. We are not who we once were. And so in reality, the point being, we don't live the way we used to live, right? There was a time in our lives when sin was all that we knew. I remember those days, and I did it quite well, right? That's all we knew was sin. But we don't have to do that anymore, he says. 
Matter of fact, in the very next verse, verse 13, he says, do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Okay? Now, uh, let me just skip that part. So reminding them here of what he has already stated in the past 10 verses, he says, you have been brought from death to life. And therefore, he says, offer yourselves to God. Okay? God did not transform you. Uh, God did not make you or turn you into a new creation so you can use the parts of your body for sinful purposes. Okay? For example, and we talked about a few things last week about our body, our mortal bodies, as he uses that term. I mentioned the tongue. James mentions the tongue, right? As far as our tongue is concerned, it should no longer lie. It should no longer mock. It should no longer slander. It should no longer make false accusations. And of course, you can go on and on and on. But that part of the body, that tongue, just like every part of the body, is to now be used as an instrument, he says, of righteousness. The very same tongue that speaks vile things, he should, should be seen as, for example, virtuous, right? Coming from somebody who has a purity of life. Someone who stands for what is right and what is true and what is honorable in the eyes of God. Kind of reminds you when you go back to James and he says, how can, how can this, this one tongue curse men but yet praise God? And he's saying here in so many words, using these mortal parts of our body, um, he's saying well, what needs to happen is we need to not do this with our tongue, but we need to do this, okay? Don't do this, but if you will, do this. And so we ended last week in verse 14, which simply says, for sin shall not be your master, because you are not under the law, but you are under grace. So in concluding this particular section and its theme, Paul shares one last reminder, and he says, sin shall not be your master. Now, he's already said in verse 2, we died to sin, right? He said in verse 3 that we were baptized or, if you will, immersed into Christ. He said in verse 4 that we have a new life. Verse 7, he says, we have been freed from sin, okay? But just in those verses alone, that should help us solidify Paul's statement. Sin is no longer our master. It doesn't control us. Verse 11 says, we died to sin and are alive in Christ. And therefore, as Paul says there, we are not under the law, but we are under grace. As a side note, you know, folks, if we, if the believer was under the law, it would be impossible for sin uh, to not be, it'd be impossible to, ha to not have sin lording over him, because that's exactly what it would be. Paul said earlier in chapter 5, verse 20, the law was added so that the trespass might increase. In 1 Corinthians 15, 56, we're told the power of sin is 
the law. And then right here in, in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, he says, it's through the law that we become conscious of sin. In our next chapter, in chapter 7 here, you might remember where Paul's talking about himself and his struggle, right? He says, I didn't even know what, what coveting was until the law said, do not covet. But it just reminded him that you're sinning, Paul, right? That's what the law does. The law and sin go hand in hand, okay? You can't be under the law and avoid sin as your master. Because as you know, that was the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law was to show us, was to remind us of our sin and therefore push us to Jesus Christ. Right? When the law says, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, it reminds you all the time, oh man, I failed, ooh, I screwed up, I did that. And it keeps telling you that. And so it tells you, you know what, you need a Savior and that Savior is Jesus Christ. So the law does its job. It continues to reveal to us that we're sinful people. Now, as we continue with that exact same context in mind, and that really is a, a challenge to live a sanctified life, that's just really what we're looking at. It's important, I think, for all of us this morning, before we get into that, to actually contemplate how ugly sin is. That's not something we think about too much, but how ugly sin is. I think we're all guilty of, of sometimes looking at sin almost as if we're talking to a child and saying, oh, that's a no-no, and just kind of keeping it low-key, right? Yet sin is so awful, as you guys already know, it has corrupted the entirety of creation. Of creation, not just you and me, of creation, okay? Stay here in Romans. You can just turn forward a couple chapters to Romans chapter 8. And look there at verses 19 and 20, 19 through 22. He's talking about create, he's kind of personifying creation. Okay? And he says here, starting in verse 19, he says, the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. It's waiting till it's finally that point in the end. Verse 24, the creation was sub subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. And then verse 22, it says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Folks, creation, nature itself is a slave, he says, to decay and death because of sin. Due to the effects of sin, creation itself longs to be liberated. Okay? Listen, folks, sin is rebellion. Sin tramples on the truth. It tramples on the word of God. Sin, as you know, feeds on itself. And when you sin, it's as if you need or you want to sin even more, almost feeling like it is all-consuming. So whether you think it or not, it brings forth misery. Sin brings forth hopelessness. We think at the beginning it brings forth joy, but 
Not necessarily. It doesn't do that. And of course, as you know, for the unbeliever, it will send them to an eternal hell. Right here in Romans chapter 1, you guys might remember as we studied there, Paul uses the word depravity, or depending upon the translation you have, uh, a reprobate mind. Okay? That mind, he says, brings forth all kinds of sins coming from people just like you and me. I'm just going to flip back there. You can if you'd like. But Romans chapter 1. If you start reading in verse 29, you'll see there it says, They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, of evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. And if things were bad enough, by the way, it then says they invent ways of doing evil. If there wasn't enough ways already, people invent ways of doing evil. It even says they disobey their parents. They're senseless, they're faithless, they're heartless, they're ruthless. And trust me, that's not an exhaustive list. Okay? Now, some of those folks, as you read those with me, are extremely bad as far as sin is concerned, right? They are. You think of the words of murder and wicked and evil and all those kinds of things. But unfortunately, many of those other sins, okay, verbally, verbally out of our mouths, they would be declared a sin. If I asked you, hey, is this wrong? Is this a sin? Everybody, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, it's bad. Yet it doesn't seem to be a big deal when it's committed. You know what I'm saying? Oh, we're the first one to raise our hand. Oh, yeah, oh, it's terrible. Oh, but when you do it, it seems to be, oh, well, you know, it's not a big to-do. It's like when people call it, it's a little white lie. There's no such thing as a little white lie. It's a lie. It's either a lie or it's truth. Right? So many professing Christians do not like the consequences of their sin, yet they are unwilling to give up those very sins that carry a cost. They're just unwilling to do so. As everybody here today understands, the church today is really no different than the early church in that it struggles with sin. Every human being in this room right now has a time where it struggles with sin. And therefore, in our text this morning, Paul continues to push forward with the basic principles of not only do we need to step away from the sins of our former life, those sins of who we used to be, but actually get on and remain on the path of pursuing righteousness. Okay? It's like I said a minute ago. Sometimes we think God's word just says, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But he's saying, let's not do this, but let's do this instead. Okay? It needs to be replaced with something. So let's read that. Read verses 15 through 18 with me. He says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one in whom you obey? Whether you are a slave to sin which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly 
obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. Now, as we begin here this morning in verse 15, this verse should remind you of what was said here in chapter 6, verse 1. Okay, because they are very similar and ultimately they actually make the very same point. Okay, so let me read here. I'm going to read verse 15 and then I'm going to go back and read verse 1. So here, once again, I'll read verse 15. He says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Now, remember, he's coming off of verse 14 there, right? Verse 14 just said, you're not under the law, but you're under grace. And therefore, the question Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? Now, look back to verse 1, right here, chapter 6. You might remember this. It says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And he says, by no means. Now, if you remember our study there in chapter 1, which is really no different in the context of here in verse 15, or I guess verse 1 and verse 15, Paul has already clearly taught in previous chapters we are not saved by the law and we do not live by the law. The law does not transform us. As I mentioned earlier, what it does do is it convicts us. Okay? Earlier I mentioned Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, where it says the law leads us to Christ that we might be justified by faith, okay? The law tells us, it proves to us we're sinners. That's what it does. And therefore, it leads us to Christ. Not that we'll be saved by the law, but he says so that we can be justified by faith. The law has a job to do, but so does faith. They're completely different here, you see. Paul has taught us thus far and for them of you who haven't been here, you've missed some of this, but as we've gone through the book of Romans so far up to here in, in, uh, in chapter 6, um, Paul has taught us thus far that we're not under the law, okay, that we're justified, justified by grace alone, you know the rest, right, through faith alone, in Christ alone, Right? He's taught us thus far. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Many of you know Galatians 2.8, right? For it is by grace that you are saved. Did you catch that? And then it says, through faith. Through faith, we have access to the life-changing grace of God. But he says, it is by, it is by grace that you are saved. See? Well, because of Paul's words about not being under the law and then repeatedly pointing to God's grace, just as he did here in verse 14, right? He says we're under grace. For some people, they believe that Paul has set aside the moral law of God, right? They they think he must just kick the moral law of God to the curb. In their minds... Part of their evidence is based on on what Paul said right here at the end of chapter 5. In verse 20, Paul said, Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Well, some people were taking that to mean, 
Well, Paul's just teaching that you can just keep on sinning and grace is going to cover it. Just have that. It's okay. God's grace will cover it. Well, because Paul anticipated that some would respond just like that, he brings up the question himself. He knows there's people out there thinking that. So he brings up the question himself in verse 1, right? He said, should we just sin and know that grace is going to cover it all? And of course, his answer is, no way, right? By no means, he says. Well, just like verse 1 here in verse 15, Paul is expecting a similar response from his readers because of what he just said in verse 14, right? We're not under the law, we're under grace. That's what he said. So he knows there's somebody there itching to ask the question, so Paul, tell me, if we're not under the law, are you saying that we can just just throw out all moral authority, just live the lifestyle that, that we choose? Is that what you're saying, Paul? And his answer is the same thing from verse 1 as it is in verse 15. He says, by no means. Really the best way in English to phrase that is absolutely not. Absolutely not. I've heard Dr. Dr. Steve Lawson say it means no a thousand times no. Paul actually gives those words by no means, no way, absolutely not, whatever, whatever you have there. It's the strongest negative denial in the Greek language. Okay? It, carries, it carries a sense of outrage. As if to say, how dare you even think that could be true? MacArthur's response is the mere suggestion that God's grace is a license to sin is self-contradictory, a logical as well as a moral and spiritual absurdity. You see, folks, for anyone to, to ask that question even has to make you wonder a little bit. Are they actually challenging Paul's view on the law and grace? Is, is that what they're actually doing? Or is it really they have a desire to live in sin without the consequences? That's the first thing that came to my mind. Now, I don't know the answer to that, obviously. He doesn't give it. But trust me on this. I can't begin to tell you how many people are looking for that excuse today. How can I live? Is there a Bible verse? Let's search the entire Bible. Is there something that says I can do whatever I want to do and still be heaven bound? People are always looking for it. Now, as Paul moves into verse 16, he wants to address this issue. Okay, So what he does is he gives an analogy. He gives an, an analogy that really everybody should know, everybody should understand, okay? And the key to this analogy is one word. It is the word slave, okay? Matter of fact, he uses the word slave there three times in this one verse. You see, folks, there are so many slaves in the Roman Empire at this time, it's hard to believe that anyone would not understand this analogy. And that's why he uses it, because it's easy. Just like Jesus, he would sometimes use, uh, 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 do a parable that deals with the agrarian culture. Everybody there was, dealt with agriculture, so they all understood 
the analogy. So that's exactly what he is doing here because there are so many slaves in the Roman Empire. And so Paul wants to make them think, okay? So he says here in verse 16, he says, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether you are a slave to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. I'm going to read that in the New Living Translation just so it, it does make it a little more understandable, makes it very simple. He says, don't you realize that you become the slave of whoever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Just straight up, okay? Now, as you can see in that, that verse, did you notice there are only two choices? Did you catch that part? There are only two choices that he gives. And out of those two, you are going to be a slave to either one or the other, okay? There's no one on the planet who's not a slave. No one, okay? You are either a slave to sin or you are a slave to Christ. That's it. There's no other option. It reminds me, actually, of a couple verses. Luke eleven twenty three. 23. He who is not with me, Jesus says, you guys know what it says? Is against me. There's, there's no third option, right? If you're not with me, just all the rest of you, you're against me. That's it. There's no other option. I also thought of, of Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and he will despise the other. Folks, listen. It is impossible to say that Jesus is Lord but your lifestyle reflects the love of the world. Let me say that again. It's impossible to say that Jesus is Lord. Of course, you can say it all you want. But it's impossible to say Jesus is Lord, but your lifestyle reflects a love of the world. You cannot follow Christ while being a slave to sin. Now, once again, this is just a statement of fact. Okay? The response, of course, is going to be based on who you're talking to. Here, of course, he's talking to professing believers, right? He's talking to the church in Rome. Okay? But if anything, what it should do for them, or for that matter, any of us today, is force us to do a little self-examination. Right? These kinds of things are no different for that church as well as today's church, you and me. Verses like this should force us to a little self-examination, right? I talked to men just a second ago about living for Christ. You can't live for sin and say, I'm following Christ. You can't, you can't call Jesus Lord and yet love the world, and it's sin. Sometimes we can all say once again, oh yeah, I'm with you, hallelujah. Well, when's the last time you evaluated your own life? See. Now, the easiest way to do that is to ask, which side do I want to be on? 
But we all know what the answer is going to be. Everybody's going to say, I want to be on Jesus' side, right? No, no, no one's going to say, I want to be on the other side. Ask yourself, which side do I want to be on? And once you do that, then ask yourself, well, then am I on the right road? Right? Once again, you only have two options, right? And therefore, two different lifestyles and ultimately two different destinations. None of those can be intermingled. Okay? It reminds me of Matthew chapter 7. You can turn there if you want or you can listen to me. I'm just going to read a couple of verses. Matthew chapter 7, it's the end of the Sermon on the Mount. I love the Sermon on the Mount. Anyway, the very end here, the Sermon on the Mount, verses 13 and 14. Everybody here is going to know this. But he says here, enter through the narrow gate, Jesus says. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Now, as much as I would love to, I'm not going to give a sermon on that this morning. So let me just give a quick point. He says here in one way, the gate is wide, right? He says the road is broad, huge, right? And to no surprise, what does he say? Many go through it. And then he says it leads to destruction. That's simply a euphemism for hell. Let's just be clear. That's the end result. As Jesus described, this is obviously the way of the mass majority. That's what he just said. Many go through there. Now, as far as our text is concerned this morning, these are the ones who are a slave to sin. Okay? If your life is characterized by sin, he says you are a slave to it. I didn't say if you ever sin, because we all do. If your life is characterized by sin, you are a slave to it. These people are those who give themselves up to sin. They give indulgence to their evil passions and their desires, and they follow it as obedient slaves, even if it leads them down to hell. They just keep following it. And keep following it. Now here, of course, Paul uses the word death, right? If you're a slave to sin, it will lead to death. Now, being that physical death is already, already out of the way, right? Adam took care of that for us, so we know we're all going to die no matter what side you choose. Believer or not believer, you're going to die. So he's not talking about physical death here. He's talking about spiritual death. And listen, folks, many people, just like you said there in Matthew chapter 7, wholeheartedly follow that path. They do. They were born in sin, and their desire is to remain there. They would rather follow their sinfulness. They would rather follow the world, no matter the cost. These people are devoted slaves to sin. Okay. The other choice you have, still in verse 16, is to be a slave to God. 
And he says, therefore, live in obedience to him. Constant reminder, once again, does this mean that you will never sin? Of course not. Okay? But your pattern of life demonstrates who your master is. Your pattern of life will prove who your master is. And in this case, it would be the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, what road is this? Well, if you use Matthew 7 as the example, it's the narrow road that leads to life. And he says, only a few find it. Folks, please take seriously the words that he uses. If you believe Scripture is inerrant, it is infallible. I think the old text used to say every jot and tittle. I don't know what the new one says. But please take seriously these words that are used. He said, on the wide road that leads to hell, it's broad. Many go through it. Many. On the narrow road which leads to life, what's the word he uses? A few. Listen, folks, those aren't my words. I didn't use those words. I didn't make them up. Those are the words of Christ. Okay? Wide, many go through there. And then he says, only a few. The few, he says, live in obedience to God's will and will therefore be very different than the many, won't they? The few will live their lives very different than the many, okay? Being the few, their obedience to God should be very noticeable since numerous people are on the side of the many who live in sin, right? There are so many people who live in sin, folks, that the ones who oppose that sin, the ones who choose to live in obedience to God, it should be easy to spot. Very easy to spot. If you look at your life today, for all of us, if you look at your life today and you really don't see any difference between you and just the average dude walking down the street, if there's really no difference between how you live, how you talk, how you act, how you treat others, and on and on and on and on, if there's really no evidence that you have died with Christ and you, don't, you are living a new life, then I advise you to listen to the words of the Apostle Paul as he wrote to the Corinthians, and he says you need to examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Well, Darren, that's pretty rude. Are you telling me to ask myself, are you challenging my Christianity? Yeah, but I'm not. God is. He wrote it. I didn't. He says, yeah, you better examine yourself. You know why he told that to the church in Corinth? Because they were screwed up. They were a mess. Corinth itself, as a city, was a horrible place. And these people were saying, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. I've accepted the truth. And they're bringing all that garbage into the church. And as they're living this life, Paul says, uh, wait a second. I see this lifestyle you're living. You need to examine yourself. Okay? People today, well, I've been going to church for 20 years. Right? I got my name on the side of the pew. That's not the evidence of salvation. See? So Paul challenges them to that. And lastly, before we move into verse 17, Paul says in verse 16, the ones who obey God, he says they are slaves to what? Obedience, right? He says that obedience will lead to 
righteousness. If you want, you can say holiness. You can say it leads to a sanctified life. You can call it godliness. You can call it what you will. But also, keep in mind, because Paul is using this as a contrast to the word death, and what is death talking about there? He's talking about ultimately hell, right? Because he's using this as a contrast to that, I believe here he's also talking about a life of righteousness and that will equate to justification and therefore, as you know, eternal life. There's going to be eternal death and there's going to be eternal life, okay? Now, all that being said, Paul is extremely grateful that this group fell into the latter category. Okay? And so he's going to bring up here in verses 17 and 18 and a reminder of what has taken place in their lives. Okay? Listen, he's tr- this is what he's trying to say. This was not a modification. Salvation is not a modification. He's saying this is a transformation. We used that word this morning early on. Okay? Your old self isn't being modified, it's being transformed, okay? Oh yeah, they were still slaves, okay? But as I mentioned earlier, you can only be a slave to one of two things. And what they have done is they've simply switched teams. They switched sides. Look at verses 17 and 18. Paul says, But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin... You wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Now, something I want to point out that this is very easy to miss. Don't miss the very first part there. He says he thanked who? He thanked God. Okay? He did not take pride in their actions. He did not mention their decision. He did not mention their hard work. He did not mention their perseverance. He thanked God because he is the only one who has made this transaction. It is by his grace, it is by his saving, it is by his transforming Never take pride in these things, folks. Always give thanks to God. I encourage you, I do this, I encourage you every single day, every single day, stop and thank the God for your salvation. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. No one. Thank God that he drew you to his son. Thank God that he was willing to die. Thank God that he died on the cross in order to forgive you your sins, to pay the price for your sins, not just so you can live this life on earth, but that you will live in eternity. You need to stop and thank God for that. And you know what? Do it every single day. Every day. But I just wanted to use that because it's so easy uh, for some people who have a unique theology that's very man-centered. It's like almost, phew, I made it. You know? No, you need to thank God who brought you here. Okay, so explaining this transaction is somewhat simple, right? He says, you used to be slaves to sin. That's past tense, okay? That's how, as I mentioned earlier, that's how we were born, right? We were born in sin, every one of us. 
You were born that way. That's how these people lived. And that's how they submitted themselves to sin. They thought about it. They focused on it. They enjoyed it. That's why people sin, right? Because it's enjoyable. And therefore, they kept it as their current master. Sin. It doesn't matter, folks, what they have done uh, in their life that shows some outward deeds that look really good. Everybody can do that, okay? It's, it, it seems to be that way. Well, but he's a nice guy because, you know, I look at what he did. He, he helped this person out and so forth. But don't get caught up on that, okay? Those are, anybody can do a few good outward deeds, but what is going on inside of them? What's the nature as a whole? I'll tell you what it is. Bible tells us it's full of pride. It's full of envy. It's full of deceit. It's full of slander and on and on and on. Okay? But he says, these people obeyed the teaching that Paul had given to them. This is who you once were, right? And then you obeyed this teaching. Now, as you know, Paul was never able to visit Rome. He was in jail there, right? But he was never able to visit Rome. And so this truth that he has told this church in Rome either had to be in writing, right? Or it had to be something where he gave this to somebody else and they spoke on his behalf, okay? Because he, he never did visit the people in Rome. Now, you remember, he was in jail and they did allow him uh, they did allow people to visit him. So it's certainly possible that those people themselves could have taken that message back to the church in Rome. So, but I just wanted to get that straight. Now, was this teaching simply the gospel? The good news about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ? I, I don't know. But that's all that they needed. All they needed to transform them from slaves to sin to slaves of obedience was the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was mentioned earlier in our study here in chapter 1, verse 16. It tells us the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. Did you catch that, folks? It is the gospel that's the power of God unto salvation. Romans 1.16, for everyone who believes. Okay? Going into verse 18, it was faith in that gospel, folks, that set these people free from their sin, and it turned them into a slave of righteousness. And so I think of, as I close, I think of verses 3 and 4 here. Don't you know that all of us were baptized or immersed into Christ Jesus? Were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, he says we too may live a new life. Okay? We died, we were buried, we were raised, quote, with Christ... And then he says, we too can live that new life. That's so important. I'm over. In closing, uh, folks, there's so many things that I can point out in this section of Scripture. 
But I would just say this. Please know that there are only two roads. There's not three. There's not a dozen. There's not 14 to choose from. There's two roads. And hopefully for you, that sinful one is of your past. And the other is that road to obedience unto righteousness. And you're driving down that road right now. That being said, don't just think about what you want to be the answer. As I've said earlier today, how many times when you think of something, how many people are good Christians? Me! Every hand goes up. How many people believe this? Me! Every hand goes up. I can ask all kinds of questions, every hand goes up. But in here, don't just answer this to what you want to answer it by. Of course I'm on the right road, Darren. Of course I live a life of holiness and obedience. But I just challenge you to do what was said earlier, and that is, you know what? Take some time to examine yourself. Nobody's going to examine you for you. Examine yourself. Ask yourself this question, very simple. Who am I a slave to? You are either a slave to sin or you are a slave to Christ. Once again, there is no other choice. Are you devoted to Jesus Christ? Does he, does his word govern your life? Has your will been given up to the lordship of Jesus Christ? It's easy, folks, like I said, to want to throw up your hand real quick, but you must be honest with yourself. Don't just say, of course, I'm saved and call it a day. Examine yourself and say, is, is that true? Have I surrendered my will to Christ? Am I a slave to Christ? I'm just going to leave it at that. I'm going to leave it at that challenge this morning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we have your word. Thank you that we can go through it, knowing that outside of my words, Lord, it's perfect. Um, thank you, Lord, that you give us these examples. You give us the scriptures to help us today, not just to give us a history of what took place in the Church of Rome, but to how that can affect our lives today. And, and as the body of Christ, it's really no different. Culture might be a little bit different. Situations might be different. But our sinful selves doesn't change. The heart of man doesn't change. That being said, you can change it. You can transform it, and you have for so many. And Lord, I just pray that for everybody in this room, I know it's easy to just pawn this off to say, of course I'm a Christian, I've been a Christian all my life. Went to a Christian school, went to a Christian college. I teach at a church, blah, 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 blah. But Lord, we never really examine our actual lives. What am I doing? What am I saying? How am I living? Would I be embarrassed if somebody was to follow me around for 24 hours with a camera? Would I be embarrassed at what I said or what I did or what, maybe what I didn't do? Lord, give us that ability to look inside and maybe to say, you know what? I think I need to make some changes because um, I'm not fully out there living in sin, but you know what? I can do better. I don't believe I've really surrendered myself to Christ and I need to follow him daily. And I pray that that would be all of our prayers today. And we thank you in Jesus' name.